Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have the perspective of eternity. You see the beginning and you see the end. And you see all things in between. Lord, there's nothing that escapes your notice or your perspective. And Heavenly Father, we know that all the universe exists to give you praise and honor and glory. To declare your majesty and the beauty of your holiness. Heavenly Father, we know that you have a righteous plan. And that plan includes the forgiveness of sin. The reconciliation to yourself. And Lord, we thank you for Jesus, for his death on the cross and his resurrection. That in Jesus we have life and we have love. We have hope. And we have a future. In Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death. But they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Lazarus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I wasn't there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. In this chapter, a friend of Jesus will die. His name is Lazarus. And by the way, the name Lazarus in the Hebrew language meant God is my help or God comes to help me. Another cognate of that word in the, in the Hebrew was Eleazar. And when you see the word Eleazar, it's also the name Lazarus. Emotions run high in the chapter and for good reason. 
because the chapter isn't just simply a theological expression. When you love someone, when you really love someone, it's impossible to dodge the reservoir of questions and emotions that build up inside of you like a dark mountain lake, and it begins to spill over, and the emotions and the questions spill over in the chapter. And you can almost hear underneath the dialogue, what's what's happening? Why is this happening? How could this happen? And if you live long enough, inevitably someone you love will die. And when that someone that you love dies, the flood of emotion and the flood of question can become overwhelming. And the raising of Lazarus from the dead in the 11th chapter of John is the seventh and the last sign in a series of signs in John's gospel to bring the reader to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is the Lord, that he is the Messiah, that he has power over sin and death. The point of the miracle is to illustrate and then demonstrate that Jesus has the power to give life. And we saw that in John chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus has the power over death. Jesus has the ability to give eternal life. In John chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. Jesus is the water of life. John chapter 4, verse 14. Jesus is the bread of life. John chapter 6, verse 33. Jesus is the light of the world. John chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus is the living door, the portal. The opening, if you will, into not only the next life, but the super abundant life in this life in John chapter 10, verse 7. And so it gives us all of that and more. It gives us a glimpse into the inevitable. The empty heart. The broken heart. The loss of someone that we love and the lessons that we learn from that loss. In a book entitled, The Last Thing We Talk About, Joseph Bailey writes, and I quote, The hearse began its grievous journey many thousand years ago as a litter made of saplings. Litter, sled, wagon, Cadillac. The conveyance has changed, but the corpse it carries is the same. Birth and Death enclosed man in a sort of parenthesis of the present. And the brackets at the beginning and end of life are still impenetrable. This frustrates us, especially in a time of scientific breakthrough and exploding knowledge that we should be able to break out of Earth's environment and yet be stopped cold by death's unyielding mystery. Electroencephalogram may replace mirror held before the mouth. Autopsies may become more sophisticated. Cosmetic embalming may take the place of pennies on the eyelids and canvas shrouds. But death continues to confront us with its blank wall. Everything changes. Death is changeless. We may postpone it. We may tame its violence, but death is still there waiting for us. Death always waits. The door of the hearse is never closed, unquote. 
What's interesting is that Jesus changes everything. Jesus gives life, but make no mistake about it. Jesus gives life by giving his own life. This miracle, this raising of Lazarus from the dead will be the one miracle that convinces Christ's enemies not to receive him and accept him and fall down as Lord and Savior, but to reject him. It is this miracle that it's going to put the religious leaders over the dead. The, the, the edge and push them and push them to the point where Jesus will die and the evidence of his true remarkable identity must die with him. They're going to plot to kill Lazarus. And we still face the stubborn, persistent problem of death. Jesus will help provide answers. Particularly when answers seem distant, when prayers seem cold, unyielding, unheard, unanswered. In this portion of Scripture, we're provided a few lessons that if we're careful and sensitive, we can glean. Because make no mistake about it, I guarantee you that life almost certainly won't cease. Until you too have to bury a friend. Let's look again at the first lesson. The lesson of the glory of God. Look at verse 1. Now a certain man was sick. Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. Now Bethany is a small village about two miles from the Temple Mount. As a matter of fact, this is the place where Jesus could find rest and peace in a ministry, in a life filled with pressure. Many of you know that the earthly ministry of Jesus was headquartered in Capernaum, right near the Sea of Galilee. But when Jesus was in and around the temple area, we have every reason to believe that he stayed at this place, at the home of Lazarus, of Mary and Martha. This is a place of understanding and a place of peace. As a matter of fact, when you are on the Temple Mount and you pass through the Kidron and you come to the top of a mountain and you're facing in that particular direction of this particular village, and it was a village, it was the village that you would have to pass through in order to take the road that led to Jericho. As a matter of fact, even to this very day, the Arabic word for that village, as you get ready to depart to Jericho, is rooted and grounded in the name Al-Lazari. It's the town of Lazarus. And in verse 2 it says, It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now that particular story, John will expand in chapter 12. If you just turn the page of your Bible and you look in verses 1 through 11, you'll see the story of Mary's anointing of Jesus. As a matter of fact, this incident is also recounted in Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 through 13, and Mark's gospel chapter 14, verses 3 through 9, John assumes that the reader probably will have some knowledge of this person, Mary. And so, of course, both the Gospel of Matthew and the, and the, and the Gospel of Mark pre, uh, 
precede or excuse me, come first before the gospel of John. As a matter of fact, in verse three, look what it says. Therefore, the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. The sisters send news to Jesus that Lazarus is ill, desperately ill, perhaps even terminally ill. And we're not told the specifics of the of the illness involved. Both Mary and Martha both believed that Jesus was willing and able to heal their brother. And so Jesus and the disciples, remember, are on the other side of the Jordan. If you look back in chapter 10, verse 40, you'll remember it says, And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first. And there he stayed. Because of the incidents that had taken place in John's gospel, remember they tried to kill Jesus. And so Jesus headed out of town and he went to the area that was in those days called Perea, which was on the east side of the Jordan. It's about a day's journey if you travel rather quickly. And so Jesus and his disciples are more than a day's journey away. And so from the moment that the messenger leaves Bethany, and he begins the journey to the place where Jesus and the disciples are, it would take one day. And keep that in mind because it's going to be important to you. We're not told the details of the message, but again, the shocking simplicity. Lord, look, the one you love is sick. It doesn't say, Lord, the one you love is sick. Please heal him. Lord, the one you love is sick. Come here immediately because we need your help and we need it right now. Oddly enough, there's no direct request for healing. But I suspect it's inferred. I suspect that the sisters also know that for Jesus to return to Judea was extremely dangerous. And in verse 4 it says, When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, the response of Jesus at first blush seems odd. Jesus is suggesting that this illness, this sickness, isn't for the purpose of proclaiming the power of disease or even the power of death, but for the purpose of glorifying God. And certainly it can't mean Lazarus won't die because he does die. As a matter of fact, the whole chapter surrounds the circumstances of his death. And so when Jesus says this sickness is not unto death, but for the purpose of glorifying God, it's Jesus's way of saying death won't have the final word. Death won't be the door that closes. And what is the glory of God? By the way, for those of you who are unfamiliar with that word, remember, it comes from a word doxa, which means weight or substance. The idea is that the glory of a king was the weight of his majesty, a gold crown and gold resources. So glory meant the sum and the substance of the weight of the person. In our culture, in our society, when we refer to a person and we say, dude, that dude's heavy. Are we referring to his weight? 
No. It means this is a substantive person. And that's the idea. And so the word glory means the weight or the substance. It means the power of God and the presence of God. In Isaiah 64, verse 2, it says, The consuming fire of your glory would burn down the forests and boil the oceans dry. The nations would tremble before you. Then your enemies would learn the reason for your fame. The glory, God's glory, is the manifestation of God's Character, the transcendence of his moral character, his absolute holiness. And so God's glory is revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. God's glory is displayed in his miracles. But make no mistake about it. God's glory is in his presence. God's glory is in his power. God's glory is in his miracles. But guess what? God's glory is manifested in the presence of your life. You have to realize that every single person that you meet, every single time that you meet them, you're telling them something about God. You're sending them a true communication or a less than true communication about God. God's glory is going to be revealed, if you will, in the presence of the people that he affects. The more you know Jesus, the more you love Jesus, the more you obey Jesus, the more you serve Jesus, the more you reflect his glory. The net result is that Jesus doesn't heal Lazarus immediately. And this falls into the category of what some people might call unanswered prayer, but it isn't unanswered at all. Lazarus will die for the glory of God and for the glory of Jesus Christ. In what way was the death of Lazarus for the glory of God and that the Son of God might be glorified through it? It's okay for you to ask that question, and you should ask it. The death of Lazarus and the raising of Lazarus from the dead will in part lead to Christ's own death and resurrection. Remember what I said to you. This miracle, this manifestation is going to put the religious leaders over the edge. The illness and death of Lazarus will serve as the catalyst for both God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ to demonstrate their desire for human beings to have life, to have to give life, to demonstrate the approval of the Father for the Son's ministry. In effect, this is one of several proofs that God sent His Son into the world because He, in fact, loves you, cares for you, is willing to forgive you and redeem you and reconcile you. And so... He will demonstrate His power and His love and His compassion, and He will do it by strengthening the faith of believers. But make no mistake about it. But also by confronting the unbeliever and presenting once again an unmistakable proof of His identity his message, his destiny, his death, his resurrection. 
in John's gospel, the cross is seen as both the supreme glory and the path to glory. And it's all about perspective. And Jesus has the right perspective. And it may be difficult for you to understand the perspective of God and his desire to bring glory to himself in the reflection of your life. But he wants to demonstrate it to you. The second lesson is for the love of Jesus. Look in verse 5. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now, I want you to just return just very briefly to verse 3, where in verse 3, remember where it says, Lord, behold, he whom you love. Underline that word love. It's the Greek word phileo. In verse 3, the Greek word is phileo, and it means it speaks of an affectionate love. It, it, it speaks of a love that's rooted and grounded in relationship and affection. As a matter of fact, the word is even translated elsewhere as kissed. But here in verse 5, when John writes this, he says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He uses the very well-known word agapeo. It's from that root word agape, which speaks of God's love. This is the kind of love that seeks what's best for the one that, that's loved. In other words, the highest motivation for our love isn't simply relationship. It isn't simply affection. It isn't simply feeling. It's relationship and affection and feeling important. All of those things are important. But here... It is a picture of honest, intelligent, asking and answering this question. What is best for the person that I love in spite of my feeling, in spite of my affection, in spite of my relationship? In other words, God's love seeks and demands what's best for the person who is loved. Now read it again. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Isn't that interesting? It's interesting to me that Jesus mentions each, or the Bible in this particular instance, mentions each person by name. Now, we know theologically, yeah, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Jesus loves the family, blah, blah, blah. But you know what? The Bible doesn't leave us with that impression. It leaves us with the impression that he loves us personally. And he loves us specifically. And you might ask the question, why is that important? Because each person in the family, each person in the story has a unique burden and a unique and specific need. As a matter of fact, there is no gospel in all of the Bible that is more certain than John's gospel that God loves you, that God's love is forgiving, that God's love is beyond measure, that God's love is eternal, that God's love is sacrificial, that God's love reaches across the barriers of time and space, that his love is inexhaustible. 
The psalmist wrote in Psalm 136, verse 1, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love, you know the rest, His love endures forever. Isn't that amazing? It is a love that crosses time and space. This is the kind of love that Jesus has. Let me be very clear here. It's important that you understand about the glory of God. And it's important that you understand about the love of God. Because if you do not understand about the glory of God, and if you do not understand the love of God, you won't be be able to understand. Verse 6. Listen carefully as I read it. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. You would think that when Jesus receives the news that his friend is dead, guess what? The evangelistic campaign will stop. He's going to drop everything. He's going to find a horse and he's going to ride to the rescue. And if a horse isn't available, he's going to take a rock and he's going to make a horse. But it doesn't happen. Remember, Jesus certainly has the power to heal. And Jesus had the power to heal Lazarus at that very moment. And the delay isn't rooted in indifference. And the delay isn't rooted in inability. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Now remember what I've already told you. How long does it take to get to Bethany to be on the Jordan where Jesus is? One day. He's staying two more days. How many days will it take for Jesus and the disciples to get back? One day, if you hurry. When we get to the end of the chapter, Lazarus has been dead how many days? Four days. I'm going to suggest something to you that the moment that Mary and Martha pleaded with the messenger to leave, shortly after he left, Lazarus was already dead. Shortly after he died, Lazarus is already dead. And in the Jewish culture and in the Jewish society, the Jews bury their dead immediately upon death. Immediately when a person dies, they will take the body and then they will bathe the body. They will sponge the body. They will clear the body of all foreign particles and matter. They will anoint the body with fragrances and perfumes and oils. They will take the body and they will dress the body in, in a linen garment that's very much like like a like a dress, if you will. And you place the linen garment over the body and then they would have taken that body and then they would have begun to wrap Lazarus from the bottom of his feet and then they would have carefully interspersed fragrances and spices and they would have wrapped his body. And as they continued wrapping his body, they would have wrapped his body all the way up to his neck and then they would have placed a cloth on his face. 
And the people from Bethany would have gathered from all around the village and they would have formed a processional to the place where Lazarus was buried and they would have wept and they would have wailed and they would have either taken a litter and they would have dragged his body through the dirt to the place where they would bury him because they were very, very poor or people would have carried the body to the place where he would would be buried and then Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha, and some of the other people from the village and the family would have stood at the gravesite and they would have communicated their love and their affection all the while while people are weeping and crying. And Jesus knows that he's dead. And Jesus knows. That after the first day, he would have already been in the tomb. And the second day. And the third day. And when the fourth day begun, the body is in complete rigor mortis and decomposition is already beginning to take place. And throughout this process, Mary and Martha are waiting. They're waiting. They're waiting for an answer. They're waiting. And at least in part, the answer has come. He is dead. They are waiting in severe trial, in mind-numbing trial. When we face severe illness, when we face mind-numbing trial, when we face death, sometimes there are no answers. Sometimes the answer is not forthcoming. And we wait on the Lord. And Jesus knows the exact moment when to act. He knows exactly the right moment to respond. Have you ever met, muttered out loud or even under, under your breath, You're too late. You're too late, Lord. She's already left me. He's already gone. He's, they've already fired me. They've already arrested me. You're too late, Lord. But part of what it means to be a Christian, part of what it means to understand the glory of God, and part of what it means to understand the love of God is to begin to understand God's timing and God's perspective. It may shock you. It may surprise you. It may even annoy you. But God is never late. The Lord will sometimes delay response. The Lord's timing may not be our timing. God is set to eternal, not temporal standards. God is set to eternal consequences. And part of the challenge that you have to ask and answer is, what is your perspective? Do you have a human perspective or do you have a divine perspective? The human's perspective is to focus on the now rather than the later, our immediate benefit versus the long-term benefit. The human perspective prays, Lord, listen to what I'm saying and do what I want and do it right now. The divine perspective 
praise. Lord, do you know what's happening? Do you understand what's happening? I, from my human perspective, see this as happening. Lord, do it and do it now, but nonetheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Chuck Swindoll writes, How is your vision? How is your sense of divine chiming during trials? Do you see only the crisis? Or do you see Christ's hand behind, before, below, above, and within the crisis? And have you checked your spiritual watch lately? Is it synchronized with eternity? Is it keeping his time? Or is it keeping your time? That's good. It's easy to fall into the trap of dictating to God how he should act, when he should act. But God's teaching us to love him and to trust him and to wait on him. And we see yet another lesson, the lesson to grasp opportunity. Look at verse 7. It says, then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And are you going there again? It was most lately in the last chapter. Remember, when Jesus healed the man who had been born blind, they wanted to kill him. When Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, they wanted to kill him. In other words, they are out for blood and they are out to kill him. It's a dangerous world, and it's a dangerous place. And look at Jesus' response. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. There are so many great principles that we can glean. Remember, but I want to just give you just a, a quick understanding of the Jewish way of reckoning time. Remember, Jews reckon time from the time that the sun set to the following sun set. And so the day is 12 hours, if you will. There's 12 hours of daylight. Remember, they're living in a world absent electricity. When they walk outside in the night, there's no way to literally light up the villages. And so the day begins and the day ends. And so when Jesus says to the disciples, if anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. He is basically saying to his disciples, the day will have a beginning and the day will have an end. Here's the idea. We are given the exact amount of time that we need to do all that God requires of us. That's the principle. You are given exactly the right amount of time. To do all that God requires. We are given enough time so that we can do what we need to do. But we're not given so much time that we can waste that time. There's no need for haste, but there's also no time to waste. And he's reminding you that every moment 
of every day and every person that you meet and every circumstance that you face. He's prepared it for you. And look at verse 10. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Here's the idea. There is a time to act. There is a time to work. With opportunity comes responsibility. And if you walk at a time when you're not supposed to walk, then it means that you're not walking in the light that has been given to you. When the Lord is given a chance to work, opportunities come. With opportunity comes responsibility. And so the opportunity to share the gospel, the opportunity to share Christ, the opportunity to share in hardship comes. And be be clear about this. It doesn't come often. But when it comes, you should take advantage of it. And he says the other lesson for the privilege of revealing Christ's power. Look at verse 11. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Jesus knows everything. Jesus knows that he's dead. We live in a world where death seems final. But death isn't final. You know, it's been my experience that you tread lightly around a broken heart. You tread carefully. And Jesus is using a metaphor. Because remember, Jesus has already seen the body gently wrapped. He's seen the body carried. He's seen the body placed. And Jesus says, our friend Lazarus sleeps. You know why he does that? Because Jesus sees death differently. Jesus understands death. Differently. And look at verse 12. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. But New Testament is filled with examples of Jesus saying something and the disciples completely misunderstanding the tender metaphor. Well, if he's asleep, What's better medicine than rest? Jesus, by the way, would use the same metaphor to describe the death of Jairus' daughter in Matthew chapter 9, verse 24. In the book of Acts, you'll remember when Stephen is stoned to death in Acts chapter 7, verse 60, we're told that he fell asleep. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, when Paul is writing about the death of the saints, he refers to our brothers and sisters who have fallen asleep in Christ. The reason why he uses that metaphor, again, is to communicate tenderness. And then he comes out and he plainly says it in verse 13. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. And in verse 14, it says, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. 
Do you remember at the beginning of our passage? Do you remember what the messenger told Jesus and the disciples? The messenger told Jesus that Lazarus was what? That he's sick. So how does Jesus know that Lazarus is dead? You know the right answer. I've taught you well enough that you know the right answer. Because Jesus knows everything, doesn't he? Jesus knows and understands everything about your past and about your present and about your future. Jesus knows everything and sees everything and understands everything. And because he knows everything and sees everything and understands everything, he sees the circumstances that you face and the crisis that you face and the, and, 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 and the wickedness and the hardship that you face. And look what it says in verse 15. And I'm glad... For your sakes that I wasn't there, that you may believe, nevertheless, let us go to him. Look what Jesus is saying. Jesus knew that his own death would come soon. Jesus also knew that the disciples would need help when they came for him, and when they arrested him, and when they tortured him, and when they crucified him. These disciples are going to need help, not only interpreting what they've seen in the past, but what they're going to see in the future. And there are so many powerful proofs for the Christian message, but there is no proof so powerful than when Jesus says, I am going to do this. In your reading of the New Testament and your understanding of the ministry of Jesus, the moment that he says that he's going to do something, what happens? He does it. Does he ever go, change my mind? Does he ever say, I am not going to do that? Words may fail to persuade. Arguments may fail to convince. But how do you make the miracles of Jesus go away? In the past, when Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. When Jesus says, I have come into the world so that the blind can see and the deaf can hear and the mute can speak and the sick will receive wholeness and wellness. The simple fact of history is Jesus makes cowards into heroes. Jesus turns sinners into saints. The doubter becomes certain. The selfish man becomes the servant of all. In the, in the, in the 1800s, uh, Charles Wesley in the 18th century would tell of a circumstance where we would go out and he would preach the gospel and he was preaching one day concerning Jesus turning water into wine and this man came up and he said Jesus turned beer into furniture and he said how did that happen and the man said I would go into the mines and I would get my pay and I would receive my wages and then I would go into the bar and I would drink and drink and I would drink until there was nothing left but now Jesus has come into my heart he's changed me 
And now when I work, I take the money and I buy furniture for my wife. Water into wine and beer into furniture. Jesus says that he's going to do this so that you would believe. He says, I'm glad for your sakes that I wasn't there, that you may believe. Is Jesus saying, hey, I'm thrilled to death that Lazarus is dead? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that this crisis will give an opportunity to increase belief. By the way, not only will it increase belief for the believer, but it will also confront the unbeliever in their unbelief. Make no mistake about it. Part of the purpose of your life, and listen carefully to me, Part of the purpose of your life is to convince everyone around you of the power of God to change a person's life. Part of the purpose of your life is to either communicate the fact that God is working in your life or to misrepresent the work of God in your life. Tell me what is happening. Tell me what is happening in your life. Is your life becoming convincing proof to everyone around you that Jesus has the ability to change you? Sir John Wright once said, I do not like crisis, but I like the opportunity which they supply. And the death of Lazarus will bring about a crisis Listen carefully, not just for Mary and not just for Martha and not just for the people living in Bethany and not just for the disciples. The death of Lazarus will bring a crisis for Jesus. Does that shock you? The death of Lazarus brought Jesus the opportunity to show his love, to show his compassion, to show his power, to generate belief, to create opportunities for courage and loyalty. And no wonder Jesus says, and I'm glad. I'm glad for your sakes that I wasn't there. Because later on in the passage, we're going to come to that shortest verse in all of the scriptures where it says that Jesus wept. Don't for a moment conclude that because Jesus is completely human and that Jesus is completely divine, that somehow the grief becomes less because it's not true. Jesus is glad, not that Lazarus is dead, but rather that he is going to save Lazarus in a way that's unexpected. In a way that will bring glory to the Father and glory to the Son. That's what a crisis does. It makes an opportunity. In the Chinese language, there are two characters that create the character for opportunity It is crisis and it's danger. 
and opportunity. Danger and opportunity together create the character crisis. Spurgeon said, the spade of trouble digs the reservoir of comfort deeper and makes room for consolation. I like that. And for the benefit of demonstrating courage and loyalty, when all is said, look what it says in verse 16, then Thomas, who's called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go also that we may die with him. Like I said, Jews in the first century, like Americans in the 21st century, typically have two names. Now, we know in America we have exceptions. People like Cher. She only has one name. People like Prince. They only have one name. Or certain people who probably could be known by one name. Oprah. In the first century, Jews had two names. A Hebrew name known to family and friends, and a Greek name known to the larger community. Thomas is Hebrew. Didymus is Greek for twin. Peter is Greek. Kephos is Hebrew. Tabitha is Hebrew. Dorcas is Greek. The list could go on and on. And so the identifier for Thomas, who is called the twin, makes this statement. And by the way, Thomas often gets a bum rap. Remember when we see him elsewhere in the New Testament... He, after the resurrection, he says, unless I take my hands and I place it in those places, the the wounds of Jesus' hands and the wound of his side, I won't believe. And so we've given him the name Doubting Thomas. And so what exactly is Thomas saying when he says, let us go also that we may die with him? He understands that returning to Judea and Jerusalem is almost certainly suicide. But give him credit. He's willing to go. R.H. Strachan called this, quote, there was, this was not expected faith, but loyal despair. I like that. But whatever else it means, do you know what it means? He's not willing to quit. He will go forward with Jesus. And by the way, there are few places in the whole wide world that are more dangerous than walking right beside Jesus. And that's going to take courage. And that's one of the benefits of demonstrating courage and loyalty. And remember, courage isn't the absence of fear. Real courage understands, real courage is aware that you might die. Most police officers and firefighters that I've met have a real keen sense of self-preservation. They don't want to die. But their training and their commitment refuse to allow fear to rule the day. Courage allows the heart to go forward when the cause is right and necessary. And by the way, opposition is an unavoidable byproduct of obedience to God. If you're a believer, expect opposition. Because opposition is the opportunity to show strength and character. Courageous people risk their lives to do what's right. In Exodus chapter 1, verse 17, many of you are familiar with the story. It says, quote, The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do, They let the boys live. 
You know, the midwives are later talked about in the passage. Their names are recorded for us. Shipra and Puah. Hebrew midwives helped women give birth and they cared for babies until the mothers were stronger. And when Pharaoh asked the midwives to kill the Hebrew boys, he was asking the wrong group of people. Midwives were committed to helping babies be born, not killing them. Midwives were made to help babies be born and to strengthen mothers, and they risked their lives to do what's right. Christians are made to follow Jesus, to love Jesus, to obey Jesus. Courage grows from the power of Jesus and the presence of Jesus. And now we've come full circle. Because remember what the power of Jesus and the presence of Jesus really is? That's the glory of God. It is the presence of God. It is the presence of His character. It is the, the, the presence of His compassion. It's the presence of the power to forgive and heal and reconcile. Courage grows from the power of Jesus. Courage grows in the place where God's glory is made known. What do you do when you are faced with a problem or a burden or a grief that seems impossible to bear? seems so trite, almost superficial to say pray. But remember what we believe, that prayer literally links us with the living God. We pray. And remember, unanswered prayer is not unheard prayer. All prayer, whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, all prayer is always answered. The answer is always yes or no or Wait. And when you get the answer, wait, and you pray this prayer, Lord, don't want to. That's not something I want to do. It immediately implies that you know more than Him. Our disappointments are often God's appointments. Are you willing to allow your disappointment to become God's appointment for glory? To manifest His presence? His power? Are you willing to allow His hope and comfort to become a part of your life? When fear and doubt and grief overwhelm you, sometimes that's when you need to refocus. And the Bible says, don't be afraid. And there's a reason why the Bible says, don't be afraid. Because courage grows when you trust the Lord. You can trust his eternal perspective and you can trust his timing and you can trust that he's bringing opportunity and you can trust that he's wiser than you and you can trust that he's more compassionate than you. You can trust that he loves you. You can trust that he keeps his promises and you can, you can, you can resist the temptation to worship the problem. 
and worship the Lord. You can do it. If you find yourself dwelling on the problem and talking about the problem and analyzing the problem and sharing the problem and eating the problem and drinking the problem and sleeping the problem instead of praying and reminding yourself that God is in control, ultimate control, ultimate power, ultimate ability to handle the problem, you have the right to cast all your care upon Him because He cares for you. Resist the temptation to worship the problem. Regain peace and joy. Focus on the Lord. Focus on His love. Focus on His timing. Focus on His peace. Focus on His forgiveness. Focus on His hope. Focus on His promise. And then worship Him. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 121, verse 1, I lift up my eyes to the hills... Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. He will not fall asleep at your point of pain. Think about His glory. Think about His love. Think about His perspective. Think about the future. Think about His ability to make good on the promises that He's made to you. And I'm done. Let's stand. Heavenly Father, what an amazing passage of Scripture. Lord, we are reluctant to learn lessons. But Lord, I pray that we would. Lord, as we continue in the passage, we're going to be talking about growing faith in the garden of grief. Grief seems like such an unnatural substance to use to grow our faith. But Lord, I pray that you would do exactly that. Lord, I pray for that person who finds themselves in a difficulty and they are overwhelmed by the fear and by the pain and by the emptiness and by the hurt. Lord, I pray that they would spend some time, that they would visit you in your word. Lord, I pray that for each and every one of the people who are listening to me, that they will be reminded that their life will will, it always will reflect the glory of God or deflect the glory of God. Lord, I pray that we would be men and women who honor you. Lord, I pray that we would be men and women who, when people look at us in time of need and sorrow and pain, that we can remind them of our great God and Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.